for the interest of, of members, we have um, a bookstore at the back um, where you can buy things during lunch break. So it'll, that store will be manned. Um, I'm just going to record my, my talk. Um, and among the books you can buy is uh, my, my book, The Liturgy, The Family and the Crisis of Modernity. And I've been talking um, about my book in all sorts of places and writing um, about it, <coughs> things that uh, come up in it. But I'm now in the final stages of preparing two other books for publication, which, which are not solely written by me, they're uh, collaborative efforts. One is about the monarchy, and I, I won't talk about that here. The other is about um, petitions in favour of the traditional mass, the most famous of which was the 1971 Agatha Christie petition, which led to the 1971 English indult. This is to be called the Latin Mass and the Intellectuals Petitions to Save the Ancient Mass from 1966 to 2007. So actually there are quite a few of these petitions. For my talk today, I'm going to read a uh, reworked version of one of the chapters by me on the liturgy, on the role of the laity and converts in supporting the traditional mass publicly in its great hour of need in 1971. Um, for I think the spirit of these individuals, their perspective and their insights remain central to the identity of the Latin mass society and the contribution the society makes to the life of church. The tablet reported on the lively inaugural meeting of the Latin Mass Society, which took place in 1966. I quote, as any anthropologist could have predicted, the sudden compulsory abandonment of sacred collective, a sacred collective art form, an ancient and accepted matrix of devotion, is bound to leave high, dry, and desolate both those brought up to it and those who have discovered in it a living and continuing symbol of supernatural, supernational, changeless, and eternal faith." Unquote. Um, this was before the tablet went, went bad, <laughs> which can be dated quite precisely as a matter of fact. Um, they rejected Humane Vitae in 1968. Um, they were actually, it was the more conservative Catholic publication up until that point. It may be surprising that this was, in the 1960s, apparently more true of the laity than of the clergy. But the specialist education of the laity had prepared them not only to obey their superiors, but also to see the Reformed Mass as perhaps less lovely, but necessarily better. Geoffrey Houghton Brown, um, one of my predecessors as chairman, uh, notes on a meeting held by, the Latin Mass Society, by a Latin Mass Society sympathizer, and I quote, the laity were all for us at this meeting and the clergy all against us. But were these laity classicists equipped with a specialist education to understand the Latin of the ancient mass, or were they a simple faithful rebelling against an intellectual elite who thought they knew better? On the one hand, in the general audience address um, of Pope Paul VI, uh, he contrasts those, and I quote, those who know the beauty, the power, and the expressive sacrality of Latin, who would be expected to regret the reform, with 
and again I quote, the children lose the world of labour and of affairs, unquote. I've always assumed that affairs here is a, is a literal translation of the Italian. He means business, world of business, who would benefit from the removal of what he called the dark screen, uh, the barrier represented by the use of Latin. So he said that in 1969. Pope Paul's language anticip is anticipated in 1964 letter of Cardinal Heenan's who suggests the translation of the Mass into the vernacular was, and I quote, for the sake of the ignorant and the weak, unquote. In the letter to the tablet, the Latin Mass Society activist Gillian Edwards notes that earlier correspondence in the letters page, and I quote, are convinced that all who love the Latin Mass must be classical scholars, unquote. But she says this is not true. On the other hand, it is also widely suggested, as Christopher Sykes put it in the tablet article, Christopher Sykes, the great friend of, of Evelyn Waugh and his biographer, um, that the, Christopher Sykes says um, that the opponents of the reform were, quote, a small, unintelligent minority. Again, Father Jeffrey, uh, not Jeffrey, Father um, Brian Houghton, uh, who's in fact a cousin of the Houghton Brown uh, Chairman of Latin Mass Society. He noted, quote, the undeniable phenomenon that the people who knew Latin least are usually those who most lament its departure, unquote. Elsewhere in the book, I quote Cardinal Heenan's terror of liturgically progressive intellectuals. These are letters, his letters to um, Evelyn Waugh. How, for the Houghton's generalization about the support of Latin is borne out by the nature of the lay movements which sprang up to defend the ancient mass. Dominated as they were and remain by the simple faithful. These are the kinds of Catholics least understood by the intellectual reformers of the Concilium, the body in Rome tasked with producing the new liturgy, who for the most part lacked pastoral experience. But then again, as the petitions demonstrate, there was great sympathy for the traditionalist cause amongst a different set of intellectuals, including writers, artists, and of course, classicists, both inside and outside the church. Uh, thus, even the broad generalization about this is only possible with the aid of some distinctions. First, the intellectuals produced by the church's own educational institutions included many with a deep appreciation of the ancient liturgy, but as a class they had also been influenced by two distinct trends in the mid-20th century. One is specific to the Catholic Church, the liturgical movement, allied to some extent with a revived theological modernism, leading to a comprehensive rationalism and functionalism about the place of the liturgy in the spiritual life. Um, as I note elsewhere in this book, um, this attitude was summed up by its opponent, Tito Cassini, the author of the book, The Torn Tunic, an Italian writer, with the phrase, if I don't understand, I don't pray. This is a characterization of, of his opponents. The other trend, was the modernizing, anti-traditional attitude of the modern public sector. The Latin mass, according to a certain mindset, needed to be tidied away for the same reason that the slums needed to be cleared rather than provided with plumbing. The British coinage needed to be decimalized 
England's ancient counties need to be replaced by units of local government more equal in size. And London's redundant or outdated Victorian railway stations needed to be bulldozed. All this, of course, was happening exactly the same time in the 60s and the early 70s. They were messy, irrational, and unsuited to the demands of modern life. Catholic intellectuals, influenced by the liturgical movement, were often able to see the limits of rationalism. On the other hand, rationalism is an attractive ideology for the functionary of middling intellectual powers who wishes to appear superior since it requires the application of technical knowledge, which can in principle be borrowed from specialists rather than the exercise of judgment. When the great liturgist and indeed convert, um, Father Louis Boyer, arrived at the Concilium to assist its work on the liturgical reform, he found an institution caught between two groups of people. He describes it with characteristic asperity. And I quote, Although it included a fair number of superior intellects and of deeply sensible and experienced men, they were submerged in a mass of worthless idiots and of those self-confident sort who, in the church as in government, so often show themselves to be mere blockheads, obstinately clinging to their own limitations. Um, I do recommend uh, Boyer's book, incidentally, his, his memoirs, uh, which um, has a whole chapter of this stuff. The conflict between the proponents of reform and the intellectuals of the petitions is paralleled by the conflict between post-war city planners and Sir John Betjeman and the Victorian Society and their allies. The planners' schemes were already being implemented before the Second World War, and not only in Mussolini's Italy. Later, some were facilitated by war damage. Gavin Stamp, the great chronicler of architectural destruction in Britain quotes the city architect of Coventry, who was, which was particularly badly affected by the bombing. I quote, this is the architect. We used to watch from the roof to see which buildings were blazing and then dash downstairs to check how much easier it would be to put our plans into action. Thank you, Herr Hitler. In Coventry, one self-described old citizen spoke for many when writing in a local newspaper, and I quote, we should like the new Coventry to be something of the old Coventry, and not merely a fourth-rate provincial city on futurist lines, unquote. This sentiment was ignored by the city council, but Betjeman and his allies were able to articulate such concerns of ordinary people to defend their unfashionable aesthetic tastes and to mobilize them as a body to the point where they had political significance. Despite the general carnage of fine old buildings in that era, they won many important battles. Betjeman, of course, is, is uh, immortalized in uh, St. Pancras Station um, on one of the platforms in, in a statue. Um, so he's saved St. Pancras. The cultural intellectuals in represented in the petitions were able to do a parallel service for ordinary Catholics. In both cases, what they were defending was rejected by the most influential official circles. 
but retained enormous support, not only among the less educated, but also among what, what we might call the real cultural elite, which was not truly represented by municipal architects or by the functionaries of the concilium. The contrasts between the two battles, however, are also instructive. The liturgical movement intellectuals who took part in the reform alongside the blockheads not only mitigated the damage being done to the liturgy, but also gave the whole project intellectual credibility to a certain degree. These intellectuals range from some, like Louis Boyer himself, who rejected rationalism and liturgy as a mistake, and made harsh criticisms of the reform, to others like Joseph Jungmann, S.J. Jungmann, um, a member of the preparatory committee and council peritus, though not, in fact, a member of the concilium itself, he was getting on by then, um, was a thoroughgoing moderniser, but also a genuine scholar with an international reputation. The liturgical reform could not simply be dismissed as the work of ignorant Philistines, pleasing though that might be, um, like, to take another example from Britain's architectural battles, plans put forward by the Anglican Bishop of London to, dis to demolish 19 exquisite Wren churches in the city of London to make way, as T.S. Eliot commented satirically, for chop houses. This is connected with another contrast which relates to something already noted. The formation of clerics prepared them to accept the reform to a large extent because this formation stressed the kind of liturgical participation which the reform facilitated. This is part of the explanation why so few priests protested about the liturgy, alongside the difficulties imposed by the obligation of obedience to bishops and religious superiors. The attitude to the liturgy naturally, this attitude to the liturgy naturally affected lay Catholics to a greater or lesser extent, the key factor being the extent and sophistication of their Catholic education. It is less surprising then to see the less educated Catholics joined in their opposition to reforms by a great many intellectual converts with whom the church in England was uniquely well supplied at that historic moment. The architect of the liturgical reforms, Annabelle Bobbini himself, singled out converts as people upset by the reform and the constituency alongside the elderly to be served by the English indulgence. The attitude of converts in particular needs some closer attention. Converts were among the most outspoken defenders of the traditional mass in England. The Catholic Church in England had, since the time of Newman, been characterised by conversions, sometimes stimulated by a particular crisis of the Church of England. The most recent such crisis before the Council involved a scheme to bring the Church of South India which was composed of non-conformists as well as ordained Anglican clergy into full communion with the Church of England in the early to mid-1950s. In other words, they were going to fudge the issue of whether ministers, who were basically Methodists, um, would be accepted as Anglican clergy, or equivalent to them. Um, Methodist ministers don't have any kind of ordination service. There's no pretense of apostolic succession or sacramental ministry or anything like that. Amongst others, this brought into the church, the Catholic Church, Hugh Ross Williamson, 
Ross Williamson had started life as a Congregationalist, had become an Anglican cleric and then a Catholic. In due course, he became a key activist in the Latin Mass Society. He was uh, a vice president. Um, alongside the converts, Arnold Lung, who was the founding president, and Jeffrey Hutton Brown. Ross Williamson was succeeded as the leading English language polemicist for the traditional cause by another convert, Michael Davis. Of the 24 Catholic signatories in the Times list of UK-based petitioners in 1971, uh, including Agatha Christie, eight were converts, including the best known of them, the lapsed convert Graham Greene, the artist and poet David Jones, the Scottish writer Compton Mackenzie, and the writer Malcolm Muggeridge. Of the three English signatories of an earlier petition in 1966, the convert Evelyn War was the only Catholic. In addition to these, Joseph Pierce, in his marvelous book, Literary Convert, notes the views on the reform of many um, of the people that he writes about. Christopher Dawson, the historian who died in 1970, was a fierce critic of reform and a staunch defender of Latin. The novelist Antonia White was shocked by liturgical abuses and complained of the lack of silence in the reformed mass. The dramatist Robert Spate praised the Vatican, Second Vatican Council in his 1970 autobiography, but was appalled by, and I quote, the vernacular liturgy, popular and pedestrian, intelligible and depressing, which has robbed us of much that was numinous in public worship. Alec Guinness, who was asked but declined to sign the petition, nevertheless exclaimed in his 1986 autobiography, Blessings in Disguise, that while he liked the reform in principle, the translations were of, and I quote, a supermarket quality which is quite unacceptable, unquote, contributing with such practices as handshaking and curing to give the mass, I quote, the general tone of a BBC radio broadcast with tiny tops. There are several reasons why converts were particularly keen to defend the ancient mass in the course of the 1960s. The converts of this generation were familiar with non-Catholic clergy, most having been brought up with it. They had accordingly made a positive choice of the Latin liturgy of the Catholic Church over the elegant, archaic vernacular of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, or in some cases, the services led by non-conformist ministers and the attendant forms of participation. As a correspondent in the tablet said about the ancient mass, and I quote, it is what drew many of us into the church, a potency and depth of worship which few other Christians preserved and which we had been looking for all our lives. It is also what the church, to our bewilderment, now appears to condemn as a private devotion and to look on not only as worthless, but sinful. Misery is not a strong enough word for what we feel. Father Hatton, himself a convert, was forever struck by the explanation given to him at the Catholic Mass by a French schoolfellow in the 1920s. Hatton had been sitting in the gloom at the back of the chapel during daily Mass at a French boarding school. He explained to his friend, I quote the passage, I'm a Protestant. I have attended our Protestant services, and they are very lovely, all about Jesus. 
to his school friends says, yes, all about Jesus. They must be very lovely, but they are not the Mass. The Mass you see is Jesus. He hesitated for a moment. Then, you see, God became incarnate to Demas on the cross. But at the Last Supper, he left his body and blood under the appearance of bread and wine as the guarantee of our redemption. That is what the Mass is. The true presence of Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, under the appearance of bread and wine. Before such an act, there is nothing you can do or say. You can only remain silent. I wish I could join you at the back of the chapel. Not all cradle Catholics and not all converts would be able to articulate the contrast in this way, and indeed many cradle Catholics would not have had any experience of Protestant liturgy. Nevertheless, at an instinctive level, the contrast of which this is a description was a powerful one. It is not just that the reforms, such as vernacularization, brought the Mass closer to Protestant services in externals. As Father Houghton argues in a paper included in the book, they implied a conception of prayer which was closer to the Protestant one. Max Thurlian of the Taizé community, he eventually became a Catholic in fact, um, but he wrote as a non-Catholic in May 1969 of the newly published Mass, I quote, the new order of mass, whatever its relative imperfections may be, is an example of that fruitful care for open unity and for dynamic trust, truly Catholic. One of the fruits will perhaps be that non-Catholic communities could celebrate the Holy Supper with the same prayers as the Catholic Church. Theologically, this is possible. And in fact, this is true. Um, many Protestants use uh, texts which are essentially identical to uh, Eucharistic writing. Similarly, a certain professor, Gerard Siegwald, of the Protestant Theology Faculty at Strasbourg, was quoted in the tablet in early 1970, saying, and I quote, nothing in the renewed mass could truly trouble the Protestant Christian, unquote. Uh, these kinds of statements were grist to Hugh Ross Williamson's argument the Reformed Mass was a surrender to Protestantism and that Eucharistic prayer too was actually invalid. His writings on this caused some embarrassment to the Latin Mass Society, which later adopted a rule that those who rejected the sacramental validity of the Novus Ordo were ineligible for election to the committee. <laughs> I don't think very many people came into that category, <laughs> but nevertheless it was, a, it was a problem. Against Ross Williamson, one can point out that even in the Reformed liturgy, the Roman canon survives as Eucharistic Prayer 1. Uh, and that expresses a Catholic theology completely at odds with classical Protestant positions. Thurian and his co-religionists may have been delighted at the disappearance of the offertory prayers, for example, which emphasize the sacrificial nature of the Mass. But the theological possibility he talks about or Protestants using the Reformed Missal presumably depended on being able to pick and choose between the options and was not, in fact, a judgment about the Missal as a whole. I rather think that these objections to Ross Williamson's polemic missed the point he was really trying to make. Ross Williamson was not ignorant of these matters. As an Anglican, he had written 
an extremely good book on the Roman canon, which I don't hesitate to recommend. The Great Prayer, it's called. But there was something in the Reformed Mass which shook him to the bones, which took him back to those long years of familiarity with, with the Protestant milieu, which, as he had imagined, he had escaped. He may not have diagnosed it perfectly, but the most important sense in which the Reformed Mass is conformable to the practice and principles of Protestantism, as he put it, is the way in which it invites worshippers to pray. It is, in Father Harrington's terms, all about Jesus, and no longer simply Jesus. The same idea may lie behind some of the, many of the quotations from converts, which I included above. They lament the loss of silence, the loss of the sense of numerous, the loss of the dignity and gravity of the Mass. These things do not impinge on the sacramental validity of the rite, but this does not make them unimportant. These features of the ancient Mass are not mere means to prayer, although they are that, they are instructions on how one is to pray. Before such an act, there is nothing you can do or say. You can only remain silent. To conclude, the Laetian converts were certainly not the only people who stood up for the traditional mass. And the clergy are, in a very obvious way, an indispensable to the celebration of Mass in any liturgical form. Nevertheless, it was the laity, led above all by converts, who were the drivers, particularly, of the petitions to save the ancient Mass, and it was in England that they pulled this feat off. As Father Brighton Howell wrote, quote, What a wonderful thing it is that, under divine providence, it should have been Protestant England which saved the immemorial mass. Not Spain, Italy, or Austria, but poor little England. For 20 years, she has been the only country where the immemorial mass has been perfectly illicit. Had it not been for England, it would have been completely obsolete and its revival almost impossible. No, the immemorial mass has always been illicit in the church, even if only in England. To summarise, I would like to say something about the role of intellectuals and the role of converts. On intellectuals, as in the secular realm, the church had people in institutional leadership positions, not so much bishops as theologians and administrators, who had absorbed rationalist and functionist attitudes and saw their job as making the church's institutions run more efficiently by ridding them of unnecessary, archaic, and superstitious elements. I have called these men functionaries. We could also characterize them with a currently fashionable term, midwit. People of middling intellectual powers who fancy themselves as far more sophisticated than ordinary folk and look down on them. By sovereignly applying the half understood ideas of people cleverer than themselves to situations to which they are not really suited. Opposed to these were intellectuals and artists, both Catholic and non-Catholic, who grasped, to some degree, the profound artistic and spiritual issues that were at stake. As Pope Benedict wrote about the celebration facing the people, when it comes to the canon, looking at the priest has no importance. It is just beside the point. Issues of far greater weight to do with the symbolism of liturgical East render it irrelevant 
one could say the same things about the ancient orations, about Latin, and about Gregorian chant. To compare great things with small ones, Betchman would have said, by parallel, that making it marginally quicker to board a train, or saving the trivial cost of maintaining a historic city church, is not just outweighed by the value of the buildings, but is a consideration of ludicrous banality next to it. On converts, I see their importance in this way. The cradle Catholic intellectuals of the 1960 generation were normally exposed from their earliest years to the idea promoted by many members of the liturgical movement that understanding the liturgy was the key to participating in it. Come read my book, you'll understand it. <laughs> in the 20th century, in the context of rationalism, what could it mean to understand the liturgy if it was in a foreign language? There were, they were, in this way, prepared for the reform in advance. Converts were also familiar with this way of thinking, but they rightly saw it as something opposed to the church's traditions, and in converting, they rejected it. What they saw, and to a greater or lesser extent what they were able to articulate, was the idea that the exclusion of the traditional mass meant the triumph of an approach to spirituality alien to the Catholic spirit. I will end this talk with a quotation from Geoffrey Houghton Brown, who was referring to the remark of Paul VI in favour of the liturgical texts that were easy and usual. Usual, I think he means uh, in ordinary language. So Jeffrey Altenbaum says this, a language that is easy and usual is the death of ritualistic worship. Pope Paul evidently has no knowledge of the psychology of worship. He must be that kind of intellectual for whom the poetic image is a stumbling block to his understanding, and he is utterly mistaken in imagining that the poor and humble remain unmoved by the beauty of poetry and ritual simply because they do not appreciate these things intellectually. They understand these things in their hearts, if not in their heads, and it is the understanding of the heart that unites their souls to God. The attempt to make the ritual of worship appeal to the intellect instead of to the heart is the most tragic mistake ever made in the history of the Church. <laughs>